Hello, and welcome to the Foothills Deeper Pod, a podcast for all of us looking to bring more love and more courage into our daily lives. I'm Reverend Elaine. I'm one of your hosts. Every year, hundreds of Unitarian Universalists flock to the same location somewhere in North America for a big week-long gathering called the Unitarian Universalist Association General Assembly. And every year when that happens, there is a fantastic, humongous Sunday morning worship service. And this year, the preacher and orchestrator of that Sunday service was none other than our very own Reverend Gretchen Haley, the lead minister here at Foothills, joined also by um, Sean Neil Barron, our associate minister here, and Reverend Sherry Halliday Kwan. Adam Pod on piano, all kinds of amazing people. And so today we are going to hear Gretchen's sermon from this General Assembly Sunday worship and visit with Gretchen before and after the sermon about her experience and to kind of dig in more to the themes that she explores in her sermon. This is a long podcast episode and an awesome podcast episode. So stay tuned with us, listen in chunks if you need to, because it's all good stuff. Here we are in conversation with Gretchen. Hey, Gretchen, how are you this morning? I'm doing good. Hey, Elaine. Hi. So congratulations on your first Sunday morning at General Assembly preached. Thank you. I like that you say first. (laughs) Yes, right. First of the series, obviously. Obviously. Yeah, thank you. It was so much fun. So for our listeners who have not yet been to a Unitarian Universalist General Assembly, uh, it is a big deal. It is a big gathering. And it's particularly a big deal to be invited to lead that Sunday morning service with everybody there. How did you get the invitation to preach at this General Assembly? Was it like a phone call? Did you have some inklings and then it was confirmed? <laughs> no, um, it was in February of this year. Um, I had an email from the president of the AUA um, from her assistant. So um, his name is Brent. Brent emailed me and said, um, Susan would like to meet with you for 30 minutes. When's a good time? and no topic or anything. And so I thought that she wanted to meet with me because we were falling behind on our fair share. And um, so I was very anxious about how- What is fair share, Gretchen? Um, it's how, it's the amount that the congregations are give to the UUA as a part of our covenant with the UUA. Right. And um, anyway, we, we've been behind this year because of the pandemic giving. And so I thought she wanted to check in. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and as a large congregation, our contribution is, you know, meaningful amount. So anyway, I, that was what was in my head. I found time and then, um, she, we, we got our appointment set and I, um, I, she, no, it's like the very first conversation, like very first few things we talked about. Um, she said, so I'm, I'm wondering if you would be willing and interested in preaching our Sunday morning at General Assembly. And I said, um, you're kidding. <laughs> you're like, she said, no, I'm not kidding. And I was like, oh my God. 
I actually said, you'll, as I say in the sermon, I said the first thing I said was, oh my God, I, I promised myself I would never do such a, I would never say yes to such thing. Like I never want to lead worship at General Assembly. It's always so confusing to me. And, um, but I, wait, gonna... could you just say a little more about that? Like, why, why did you promise yourself you would never do something like that? Are you, are you opposed or just, I'd love to hear more. Um, a couple reasons. First of all, because um, I know how many different opinions Unitarian Universalists have, mm. and I, 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 a lot of times think it's um, it's like a little bit of a. I think my fear is that it is that it would be like a setup of um being invited but then kind of that the critique would be uh like the main mode of receiving would be critique mm. and i i know myself <laughs> that i would put a lot of time and effort into it that would take away from other things and i just wasn't sure what if i if that was worth it um and also, um, because as I say in the sermon, I, um, a lot of times when I go to general assembly, I feel like I don't, I don't recognize the Unitarian Universalism that I know in, in, in my church or that I've known in other local congregations. I'm a very, um, I, one of my colleagues says a home I'm a very homegrown UU so I my first congregation was in 1999 the UU Church of Boulder I um, went on to later become a member in that first Universalist Church of Denver I went to seminary in Denver I have um, I've preached in if I can say every I think I can now say every UU every UU church in Colorado wow and I, because I've been in this chapter the whole time, I know the churches in, um, in Utah and Wyoming and New Mexico pretty well. Um, like I have a sense of who they all are. I know the churches in Colorado really, really well. But like, as soon as you talk about Unitarian Universalist churches or Unitarian Universalism beyond that, I just start to get confused and I, like it's something else that I don't fully recognize. And so I, I, I just had some hesitancy about whether I ma could make sense of the gathered body at General Assembly in a way that, that would help me preach. Like, what do I say to people if I don't know who they are? And so that, that was my, <laughs> that was my deeper confusion. Um, but I, Susan told me to think about it and to come back in a, um, couple days. And so I did, and I called, I called a couple of friends, um, and I told them that they, that I asked them if they wanted to try to talk me out of it. Um, like it would be a really bad idea. And they all did the opposite and just were like, obviously you're doing it. That's amazing. I'm so excited. And, um, I was, I will say I was like this, probably the, the most nervous to tell Sean and, um, and he, because I, I I think I thought he would be um 
I don't know, skeptical about the opportunity or what it would mean. And instead, he was the most enthusiastic, <laughs> which was so great because he's not known for his like immediate enthusiastic response. Um, he usually takes a bit to to warm. <laughs> um, and instead, he was just extremely he was really excited and um, that so that helped. And then a couple of my other close friends were really enthusiastic. So I called her back and we talked again and I said, okay, I'm ready. And she was like, all right, let's do it. So, um, yeah, that was, that was the beginning. Like I've known since February, I proceeded in the next, uh, six weeks or so to almost every night wake up, um, with terror in the middle of the night, thinking about the general assembly Sunday. Like, I know that sounds like I'm, I'm over, I'm exaggerating, but I'm not. I really, I really was so ob obsessively scared about um, what it was going to be and whether it would work. And, and, and um, until I knew what I was doing about it, like what the content was going to be and who I would work with and what it all would be, I, I my brain would not let it go. Mm -hmm. I thought about it all the time. So um, I was really glad when I crossed over from that because <laughs> that was torture. <laughs> that was not, that was not good. That was the hardest part of the whole process is that part of the process. Um, because I was so, just so anxious about like big platform fail. But <laughs> then I, um, so what I'm, one thing I feel like a lot of people don't know is, so I got to choose my whole team. I I got to choose everything about it. I got to choose, except um, there was a, it, it was a choir that was going to be there always. And the choir director for GA was already chosen. Mm -hmm. um, but everything else was up for me to determine. Um, so my first ask was Sean. Um, and it was, you know, I was really clear that I, like I, that they, the most important part was figuring out a team because I can't, I always say, like, I feel like I have no ideas unless I get to talk to somebody. Um, and so, I like, collaboration to me is sort of the heart of creativity. And um, I, when I try to think about, like, like, what would make it make sense to me and make it so I understood what we were doing and also who I, um, I knew aligned in terms of our, our understanding of the UUA. Um, and you know, we, that had a pre, we, we had a pre-trust going in, obviously, like I just, all that led to, I, I just really hoped that Sean would work with me on it. Um, and so I invited him early. I knew that he was going to be on sabbatical and knew it was a long shot <laughs> that he'd be willing to break sabbatical. But, um, he said yes, which was, that helped decreased my um overall terror and um also just felt like more excited and then I, I brainstormed who else I really wanted to work with and um like that I felt like would fit with Sean and I and that's how um I asked him if he would feel good about inviting Sherry Holiday Kwan who is the minister in uh Rochester New York um and he was like yes I would be oh, I would love the chance to work with Sherry and so I invited Sherry in February and um then just began yeah just that was kind of the base 
base uh, team to think about the service. Um, and then um, I had been stalking um, the uh, First Unitarian Brooklyn's YouTube for the whole of pandemic because I'm obsessed with the way this their music and kind of what they pull off. And um, I found out, I actually, when talking to Sherry, I said, um, I wish we could work with that musician from Brooklyn for this service. He's so amazing. And she said, oh, Adam. And I was like, you know him? <laughs> uh, and um, she, she said, she was like, oh, yeah, we're friends. And I said, do you want me to, she was like, do you want me to ask him? I'm like, yes. <laughs> so... <laughs> Um, so she asked if he would come, um, work with us and he said definitely yes. And so that kind of formed, um, put, pulled together another piece of the creative work. We worked with Allison, the choir director quite a bit. And we worked with, um, John Bowling, who is the, um, the music coordinator off and on just kind of for logistics, but, and then, oh, and he brought in Leah Morris, who was, um, going to be there anyway for general assembly to help with music which was great brought in another big addition and then um the i i had an idea i wanted somebody from like that was local in um portland grounded in portland but yet had a, a sense of like uh like the way that community organizing and community ministry would be could be connected to local churches or mm -hmm. um this child for the chalice lighting because I knew that I it was such a bias, the service would be a bias towards local churches. Mm -hmm. By the time I got to that idea, then I came to this, like, I want to have, um, I want to have somebody who's a community ministry, but who has a real strong sense of local churches. And um, so Sherry knew Joseph Santos Lyons also. Um, and so she suggested him and connected me with him. And he, I invited him to light the chalice. We were feeling sad for a moment that we weren't going to um, have the the kind of uh, expectation of a family to light the chalice, like with little kids at General Assembly. That's kind of like, I don't know, a stereotype or, G or a cliche. But um, and then he, he asked, any chance my whole family could light the chalice with me? And <laughs> I said, check. So um, their whole family lit, lit the chalice, which they were perfect in every way um so that was the whole whole team and i really feel like it came together so perfectly in terms of who who was a part of the service well it was a beautiful service and i think and you know it makes a lot of sense that you landed on talking about the local church and the role and the power of the local church mm -hmm. i think especially given your homegrown unitarian universalism yeah, I mean, I, I will say, so I, I brainstormed a lot, um, obviously, about different ideas. And the, I watched all of the Sunday morning uh, sermons at General Assembly since 2002 as a kind of research. <laughs> what do people say on Sunday morning at General Assembly? And um, almost all of them are about the power of Unitarian Universalism as a faith. Mm -hmm. there there's something about the the faith and the and the, the theological claims we make sometimes a critique about the way the faith has kind of fallen short but only one um nancy mcdonald lads in 2016 was really about church 
mm-hmm. and what happens in the context of a con- of congregational life. And so I, I really struggled with my nagging sense that I should talk about church because I think that a lot of people that come to General Assembly, they're more oriented towards the faith and not so sure about their local congregation. They have a real alignment with Unitarian Universalism, kind of the opposite of what I said earlier. They really understand Unitarian Universalism in a big, broad sense. Um, And so I wasn't sure that these were folks that would want to hear about the local church, but I feel like coming out of pandemic, a lot of people, um, a lot of churches are struggling. And I believe so strongly that, that um, in the power of the local church and in, and in, and the necessity of the local church for Unitarian Universalism. So it, I could just couldn't, I couldn't shake it. Um, I felt like it was a really hard sell, like to make it seem exciting. Um, you know, you use, resist the idea of being churchy in the first place. Most, most you use, I know have had at least, you know, a large portion of their life where they're like, well, I'm not really, I'm not really religious or I'm not, I don't, I'm not like into church. I just happen to go to this church (laughs) so um that ambivalence is uh it makes it so you know it's just not as um automatically appealing i think as talking about the theological commitments of our faith so i tried to talk myself out of it I, i pitched it to sherry and sean and they they got into it so um i just didn't i never shook it so I just went, went for it, but it, and then, um, uh, I, because I, I, I am so homegrown, I am so per, kind of parochial, um, about my exposure to Unitarian Universalism. I decided to uh, reach out. Um, I talked to eight colleagues, um, across the country, particularly I, focused on BIPOC colleagues Mm -hmm. um, because I knew, I know that for a lot of our BIPOC colleagues and BIPOC um, members, the local church has not been a source of hope. It's been a source of harm Mm -hmm. in our faith. And I really wanted to understand, like I wanted to fill out and kind of test and dialogue in um, deeper conversation about like where they see the local church the local Unitarian Universalist Church now and what it has been in the pandemic, how it changed, and also where it where it needs to go next. So I did these um series of like 90-minute conversations through over the last few months that helped inform the the sermon and also just helped they were great conversations. Um and uh it really left me like it just helped fill out a bigger picture than just foothills in Colorado as Unitarian Universalism. And, you know, in case you're wondering, it was, there's a lot of overlap. It wasn't, it, it did most, it mostly helped secure my sense of, I could speak to this from the particular experiences of Unitarian Universalism and Unitarian Universalist Church that I have, but it, that it would speak to something that other people have also experienced. And, um, 
and long for a lot of the um the big ideas i get to at the end of the of the sermon come like are directly connected to the those conversations mm-hmm. um of things that we we talked about in those conversations where you'd say oh i i learned this and i wish we would do more of this or i learned this and i wish we would do more of this so um that was just the joy it made me it, i left those those conversations feeling like i had enough um content to write a book on the future of the local church, which I didn't have, I don't have, didn't have time to give you the whole book and the, um, the sermon, the service, but I definitely felt like I had so many amazing conversations that I, I really, um, I, there's a lot more to say. Hey there, listener, it's Elaine. So we are about to listen to Gretchen's sermon, and in the service, this sermon was immediately preceded by a story called Partners which is written by Rabbi Mark Gelman, voiced over by Michael Cruz. And in that service, which had a visual element, there was also original artwork by Steve Sedam, who is a member of the Foothills community and a very gifted artist. So let's head directly into the partner's story, which is then immediately followed by Gretchen's sermon. Before there was anything, there was God, a few angels, and a huge swirling glob of rocks and water with no place to go. The angels asked God, why don't you clean up this mess? So God collected rocks from the huge swirling glob and put them together in clumps and said, some of these clumps of rocks will be planets and some will be stars. And some of these rocks will be just rocks. Then God collected water from the huge swirling glob and put it together in pools of water and said, some of these pools of water will be oceans and some will be clouds and some of this water will be just water. Then the angel said, well, God, it's neater now, but is it finished? And God answered, nope. So on some of the rocks, God placed growing things and creeping things, and things that only God knows what they are. And when God had done all this, the angels asked God, Is the world finished now? And God answered, Nope. God made two humans from some of the water and stardust and said to them, I'm tired now. Please finish up the world for me. Really, it's almost done. But the humans said, we can't finish the world alone. You have the plans and we are too little. You are big enough, God answered them. But I agree to this. If you keep trying to finish the world, I will be your partner. The humans asked, what is a partner? And God answered, a partner is someone you work with on a big thing that neither of you can do alone. If you have a partner, it means that you can never give up because your partner is depending on you. On the days you think I am not doing enough, and on the days I think you are not doing enough, even on those days, we are still partners and we must not stop trying to finish the world. That's the deal. And they all agreed to that deal. Then the angels asked God, 
Is the world finished yet? And God answered, I don't know. Go ask my partners. It was March 2020. You know the week. I'm sitting in my home office, and just a few feet away from me, my two teenagers are in the living room, homeschooling. And a few feet away from them, my partner's at the kitchen table. It is her turn to supervise. Every dividing line that I have carefully practiced in my ministry up until this moment, boundaries that keep my family in one world and my church and work in another, have come undone. Just like everything else I've come to know about what it means to be a minister and do church, all in a matter of days. A pit starts forming in my stomach, and the tears in my eyes feel just a breath away as my body readies itself for grief. I listen to and read every news story I can find as if tea leaves for the future that we will all soon face. With every headline, my stomach grows tighter, and I write letters, and then I make videos to the people in my church and in my family, who, especially those people who in this new world are required to acquiesce, whether they believe it or not, they are technically over 65 and at risk. For no practical reason at all, I decide I should call Lynn. In the congregation that Sean and I serve, that is the Foothills Unitarian Church in Fort Collins, Colorado, Lynn is one of our elders. Literally, in this case, she's 88. There she is. She's on the left. She's next to two other beloved elders, Bob and Bev. Lynn has been in our congregation for over 50 years. I don't know exactly why I decide to call Lynn, but I just, I just know I need to hear her voice. Lynn is one of many partners I end up calling in those days. I mean, I obviously also call Sean a lot. And then I call Sue and Sarah and Scott and Nancy and Arpy and Johanna and Glenn and Mary and Terry. I could keep going and going and going with my list of names. Who's on your list? Those people you called on in those days and who call on you. I invite you to just share a few names right now into the space or into the chat. Those partners who you count on. In those days, there was this whole web of checking in just called into being. And in every hello, the tender awareness of feeling way too little. Like our story. And in every 
how are you? The humble surrender of not having any freaking idea about any plans. Except also there was this trust, this automatic response into a steady practice of turning to each other, our partners, who were at least company in the chaos, even though none of us knew when or if the storm would pass. It is, after all, the call that saves us. And the checking in on each other that connects us with something greater, that love that abides. The voice on the other end that says simply yet powerfully, we are still here. We survived. In those days when we had no idea what it would mean for us to do church, at least not as we had known it for decades or even centuries, in those days we know, knew most clearly how to be the church. We knew to make the calls, we knew to give the money, and we knew to show up in ways that were for more than just ourselves. We also knew we'd need to learn things we'd never known and really never wanted to know. We also knew that we'd have to be okay with being uncomfortable, maybe for a long time. The only good news was that at least it would be over by the following May. When the UUA promised that we could get back to normal. Just kidding, Susan. Mostly. Said May. <laughs> Most of all, in that total disorientation, we knew we needed help, not just from within, but also beyond our congregations. The covenant among our churches was never more alive than in those days. As lay folks and professionals and UUA staff and community ministers and partners in our community, especially the disabled community who had so much to teach us in this time, all of us, all of us were in on an ongoing conversation where no one had all the plans, everyone felt too little, and yet we knew we had a big thing worth doing and our partners are counting on us and so we could not give up. In those days, we knew instinctively how to be the church. And even more, we knew most clearly why it matters that we are the church. Not perfectly, of course. I had an idea actually for a GA workshop where we all could just share our most embarrassing tech messes. That'd be fun, right? For us, I'm pretty sure we'd have to tell about our this last Christmas Eve when literally the feed, it just, just for some reason that night, it decided it would not load. And then it loaded and then there was no sound. And then, oh, right, I actually can't even tell you about it because I wasn't there because my family had a COVID exposure two days before. Yeah, it was horrible. But in sharing our stories, we would, and we all have our stories, right? But in sharing our stories, we'd remember that neither tech nor perfection are the point. The people are the point. 
and the partnership with each other and with God, that's something greater, that's, and the deal we make to keep trying, that's the point. And we did it. We are here. We are here. And we survived. Since I started seminary in 2007, article after article and lecture after lecture has described the institutional and the local church in every way opposite of how I have just described it. I have heard constantly of the church's imminent demise, the death of Sunday school, and or our inevitable implosion and or slow drift into oblivion. In seminary, we learned that millennials thought we were irrelevant. Boomers would soon be focusing on their retirement vacations. And the silent generation were aging out over the, uh, out of the heaviest volunteer lifting that we'd relied on them for for so long. Now, you may have noticed that in addition to Gen Zers who weren't yet constituted, they left out one generation in this analysis. Which, in my opinion, was a miscalculation, given how many of us Gen Xers are now holding lay and professional leadership in our congregations. To quote Nirvana, oh well, whatever, never mind. My point is, long before the pandemic came along, our beloved local congregations, this institution to which many of us have dedicated countless hours, if not our whole lives, have needed what Diana Butler Bass has described as a major reorientation if, quote, we are going to remain relevant in this new world. Long before the pandemic, our families and children weren't already were not showing up consistently or at all and yet needed ministry more than ever. Already, before the pandemic, giving was changing as younger generations had fewer resources and really didn't get this whole idea of pledging anyway. Already, we needed to be fully and fluidly pres present both online and in person, even though we really had no idea what this even meant. And already, our churches were some of the least progressive, most monocultural, white, hetero spaces that many young people will encounter in their whole lives, despite the story many of us tell ourselves or the call that most of us know our faith makes. Long before the pandemic came, our congregations already needed to change and they were already at risk. I don't mean, though, at risk of closing, especially those of you in our smaller congregations. You, you're kind of like that tiny mint plant that I planted in my backyard. It just survives even the heaviest snows. But more, I mean that we were already at risk of forgetting forgetting that why that was so clear to us in those early days of the pandemic, and that were also so clear to us in the early days after Trump's election 
or in the early days after 9-11, or after George Floyd was murdered, or after the floods took everything, or on any of those days when the bottom drops out from the middle of our lives and we know we cannot do it alone. In those days, the why of church surrounds us and scares us and soothes us all at once as we feel seen and found and held and charged as if for the very first time. This feeling, this this ministry is the promise of the local Unitarian Universalist Church with the not radical, still radical idea that we are all in this life together at its center. And when the crisis comes, we know this promise so well. We feel its urgency and its call, and we instinctively say yes. It's just on the other days. When the crisis fades, and we are back in ordinary times, we all too often forget. Or what's more true is that we have our hearts broken enough times that we choose to forget. As Sean said, churches are human enterprises. And to give yourself to a Unitarian Universalist congregation is to say yes to disappointment, or worse. And so we lose faith. We get tired. We stop going or we keep going resentfully. We shrink our dreams or grow bitter or numb or all of the above, especially in these days. Just a couple of months ago, some of our dearest congregants came to me to say they were, they were feeling disconnected from the church. It wasn't, it wasn't a complaint. It was, it was more like a confession. These are our past board members, our most generous donors. Just a few years ago, they they could not have imagined their lives without our congregation. And yet here they were feeling like they just weren't sure about any of it anymore. And they aren't alone. In the intervening days and weeks and what felt like decades between early 2020 and mid 2022, a lot of us have become familiar with this sense of disconnection. Not just because of the pandemic, with its polarization and politicization and that pit in our stomach that we never had time to tend to, but also because of the rise of white supremacy and fascism as it replied to what many of us believed was progress in creating a truly multicultural, multiracial democracy. And then alongside that, the climate crisis has come in close, which in my area now means we have wildfires in December. And in yours, might mean still trying to recover from the last storm when the next one comes. The combination of all of these collective forces constitute for us a moral injury a trauma, 
And yet we are pushed to keep going. We push ourselves to keep going, get back to work, even while death and extinction surround us and threaten us daily. We are encouraged to return to normal as if the last two and a half years were like a blip in a Marvel movie. We have survived. And also, we are not the same. Whatever notions we had of the world being finished, or at least on its way, have come undone. Whatever notions we had of we being the ones to finish it have come undone. In so many ways, our churches, our association, the institutions around us have come undone. There is so much work to do, so much ministry needed, and we are so small, so tired, and so in need of ministry ourselves. Is it, is it finished yet? Can I tell you something? When our president invited me to preach this service, just like Pastor Jacqueline Duhart told us was her first reaction, my first reaction was also no way. Obviously, I did get to the second reaction, which was, oh God, I'm doing this. But that first reaction was real, and it was rooted both in my terror and equally my confusion about what it means to be here with all of you at General Assembly. Now, to be clear, over the years I've loved much at GA, I have cried and laughed and sung with joy in the rare and powerful experience of being with thousands of other UUs while we are reminded both of who we are and who we are yet called to be. And still, I have also always felt confused about what it means to do Unitarian Universalism in general. Because where Unitarian Universalism has meaning for me is in the particular, in the people and the partners and the stories, even the particular annoyances and frustrations and heartbreak, most of all in the particular repair and the change. Unitarian Universalism comes alive by way of a localized, particular covenant grounded in place where hearts can be opened and mindsets can shift over years of often hard and even painful ministry to and with the imperfect people who keep showing up. It is like this little button that one of our congregants gave me a few years ago. It said uh, in big letters, I love people. And then in little letters underneath that, it said, in theory. The grand ideals of Unitarian Universalism that inspire so many of us to travel across the country or to log on in the middle of our busy lives, this is us loving people in theory. Here we can connect with the good news of our faith that brought so many of us to our churches in the first place, and yet keep the promise at arm's length, set in bold generalities and sweeping statements of conscience that may or may not have real meaning back in our hometowns and home churches. 
Which again, this is not unimportant, and after all we have been through, keeping our faith at arm's length is understandable. It's just this. All of this is not the deal we make as Unitarian Universalists. Our deal is not to love people in theory. Our deal is to love them in real life. Our deal is to keep calling that web of check-ins into being, not just when we're feeling the gift of being in this life together, but in the gut punch, in the times when we most feel like everyone around us isn't doing enough or doing it wrong, when it feels like the only best option is to forget right then, by which I mean, of course, right now, our faith invites us to remember how urgently it matters that we show up and be the church, not just for the rest of the world, but for ourselves. Not just for ourselves, but for that something greater. Because without the people being the church, there is no church. And without the local church, there is no Unitarian Universalism. Which means the most important part of our, this, our general assembly, is the way it inspires us to return to our very specific assemblies, our congregations, virtual and IRL, how we will take the inspiration and energy of our theoretical and theological commitments and connect them with the very real-life why that we know so well when the crisis hits and how we stitch all of this onto our hearts so that it pulses with urgency even on the ordinary days or in the days when bitterness is everywhere. In these days, we are called not just to go back to church, but to be the church and to invite our friends and neighbors to join us as partners because so much has been lost and so much has come undone, which also means that it must be time to build. It must be time to take all the lessons of who we knew to be in early 2020 and let them inform and drive a new vision where we can meet the no less urgent needs of June 2022 and beyond. I want to offer four examples of this vision. First, in the early pandemic, we loved getting to share Sundays with other UU communities, didn't we? Yeah, it was fun. It's also such a time saver to share ideas and practices so fluidly. And so, rather than just reverting back to old silos in this moment, how about we take this moment to build a movement where collaboration is the norm? Because it is possible we don't actually need 1,000 separate membership committees. Or 1,000 different stewardship committees or 1,000 different online services every single Sunday. Example two, in the early pandemic, we knew how critical our local congregations are, how essential they are. And so maybe in our new collaboration, 
We will build new congregations or plant new campuses, especially in communities hardest hit by COVID or farthest away from abortion access or in states currently criminalizing gender-affirming care for our children. How many ministries would we be starting if we decided our congregations matter at least as much as NPR? Or Planned Parenthood? And don't they? Or really, maybe our partnerships will lead us to pay more attention to the UU churches that are already in these communities and follow their lead. I mean, just imagine saying from within your church, dear UU churches in Arkansas and Alabama and Louisiana and Missouri and Wyoming. Now, I know Wyoming pretty well. It's very close to Colorado. So let me be here, pause here to be very specific. Imagine saying from within your congregation, dear friends in Casper and Cheyenne and Laramie, Wyoming, we know that Unitarian Universalism is urgently needed in your communities. And we believe your churches are the best way for our faith to be made real. Thank you for your work on reproductive justice and trans inclusion. Here's some money. Do with it what you need to grow your church. We are praying for you. We are here for you because we are partners, all of us, and we can't give up on this big thing, this deal we make to love people in real life. And yes, that is the Reverend Leslie Key, who serves both in Casper and Laramie, Wyoming. This photo is of her at the abortion clinic that she and her church are starting to help start in Casper right now as a way of fighting the trigger laws in her state. Speaking of money, my third example. Early in the pandemic, we knew that the quarantine impacted people differently. Some people lost jobs, some people couldn't get out of their homes, some people were totally fine. And the generosity that I saw during that time was phenomenal in our churches. Suddenly, it's like we understood that giving in our churches could be a radical act of equality and social justice. Or at least it can be when we meet our big dreams with big giving. But this is not the conversation happening in most of our churches right now. We are not talking about building a vision with big dreams. We're talking about cutting it, pulling back on ministry because people have pulled back. But if we are even going to approximate that vision that we have now stitched upon our hearts, then we are going to need to stop spending hours in budget meetings talking about how we can find $200 or even $2,000. We cannot wait for the church to meet the longing we have and then give. It is our giving that makes that longing a reality. 
Which brings me to my fourth and final example. In the crisis of 2020, what was clear more than anything was that there are a million places where people today can get great content. What people need more than anything now is great belonging. And the good news that we remembered in 2020 is that this is literally what Unitarian Universalists most have to offer. Our part of finishing the world is the practice of relationships, transformational relationships, accountable relationships, steadfast relationships. And so as we build, let's build up the practices of covenant that help us love each other in real life. Let's learn and teach a different way of checking in with each other, not just with the people that we already know or who are like us, but beyond that, to ask ourselves who we haven't called, haven't considered, aren't yet in relationship with, and where checking in includes not just offering comfort, but also telling the truth in all its complexities and contradictions, where it includes uncovering where we have failed each other and ourselves. And it includes asking for help and receiving help and praying together, healing, which it sounds sweet, like, let's heal. But actually, it's really hard and painful. But this is what our covenant actually requires. The hard work of healing in real life, repair, reconciliation, and recovery. In these days of disruption and destruction, we must give thanks that we survived. Our individual and collective survival, it is a miracle. And survival is too small a dream for our big faith. On these days, we must build a bigger dream for our world and for ourselves. We must remember the deal we make as Unitarian Universalists, group by group, congregation by congregation, partner by partner in these little rooms and these sacred promises. We are big enough. And besides, our partners are counting on us, so we can't give up. Let's keep on finishing the world. Amen. What an amazing sermon, Gretchen. And what you couldn't see after you preached were, was all the people at Foothills in Colorado giving you a standing ovation and just Aww. beaming with pride and gratitude. Aww. There were so many like hollers and claps and amens during your service in our space here in Fort Collins. And it just felt like a morning of um, togetherness and celebration. We did some like fun social get to know you stuff beforehand so thinking about um what you said about there being so much great content out there mm -hmm. and that churches need to be centers of belonging it, i think it felt especially good because i think we had lived into our um 
into our capacity to welcome people into belonging that morning. And then it felt so special to belong to Foothills and to see you and Sean up there, like leading us in worship. Oh, that's awesome. I love that. <laughs> yeah, I could, I mean, I could feel the, I could feel the Foothills love. There was a good number of Foothills folks in, at, um, in Portland as well. So I felt that connection and um, I have gotten a few <laughs> sweet notes from Foothills folks who have a, they're like it was great we're now feeling anxious that you're gonna go somewhere else <laughs> um and I I keep saying I really I hope you hear in all of this like uh, underneath it is a deep like it's like a love letter to foothills yeah we really wanted to bring the goodness that we know and experience like I said and the particulars of that to the big wider movement so it was all grounded in our in our love and for our the partnership we have at foothills Absolutely. So we're talking to each other uh, like three or four days after you preached. What is still sticking with you from that experience, whether it's some like sensory memory or um, how you felt, or is there some part of the message that you offered that is still resonating for you? Mm. Um, well, uh, I would say like the beginning, first of all, the experience of preaching in a room that's set up for like 2,500 people, but only like 1,300 people are were there, 1,400 people that range, um, means that it's very echoey. <laughs> so um, just kind of getting used to that took, took a little bit to get used to that experience and the lights are... Um, bright and you can't see everybody totally in the whole room so just kind of that so in other words the, the beginning of the sermon it just took a little bit for me to feel like I was connected to the people and and it took all the way until um I made my first joke about the UUA telling us that it would be over by the next May and then er, I felt like a Everybody was with me and Susan Frederick Gray was in the front row um, <laughs> and she laughed so hard. And then she said, we said, we said at least May. <laughs> and so everybody laughed and it was just, that was, so I felt like they were really with me on that, like mm -hmm. after that. And then um, getting through that to the, um, to my Gen X shout out in the middle where I love that. <laughs> when I did the Gen X shout out, like people in the room stood up in various places and started screaming and they're just so sweet. And I loved every bit of being able to do that joke because I, I felt like it, um, like it, it just, it was like, it, anyway, there, there was laughs through the whole thing. And just the timing of that whole thing was so fun. And I knew it would, um sherry who is um a millennial she she told me to uh you know we were looking for ways to cut my sermon because it was long and um she was like oh i think you can reduce this one and and i had resisted and in that moment i felt so glad that i had not reduced it and that everybody got every second of that laugh of the nirvana joke and all of that so um that was just that was great so i what i loved about all of that elaine is that I knew what was coming 
in the rest of the sermon, obviously. And I knew like I really needed those moments, though, that front part, because I knew I was going to be laying out things that were not. Um, I needed their trust in order for it to work. And those moments early on were like trust building moments and um, relationship building moments, which you get uh, like by preaching in your home church, they already know me. They are, there's already a sense of, they know kind of where I'm going to go. So that if I need to say things that are challenging, um, they're already they're like, Oh, okay. I know who you are, but this, like it, you know, they don't know who I am at all. So I really felt like I needed a lot of trust building relationship building going in. Um, so I could feel that working that made me so happy. And then, um, I was never like, once I got past that first little section, I wasn't nervous at all. The whole sermon, I felt just happy. And I know, I knew the text really well by then. So I, I just felt in, in it. And, um, Oh, I loved showing the picture of Lynn and Bev and Bob. That was um, so special to me that I got to share that because they are so um, like if anybody I think should be put on a slide at General Assembly, it's it's them. And just in terms of what they have done for for Unitarian Universalism in our through our congregation I know how much they've given and how we are, we're so indebted to their, um, their generosity. So I loved that. I loved, loved, loved the end of, um, of, as I took the, the turn that, um, so I do that part where I say, um, so much has been lost. And then I come back to that idea of so much has been lost, which must mean it's time to build. Mm -hmm. And I, I feel like in all my conversations with colleagues that, that everybody's longing for that, that note of hope mm. that, that we could, it, we could take, we could actually build right now. And that, that, that we don't have to always be in a time of undoing that we could set a, a vision for the future and, and that we could, we could claim that. and. Um, there's a way that that even as things continue to shift, we could think about what it, what kind of movement we need to build. So I loved making that turn and then laying out the ideas. Um, I loved being able. Oh, I remember so fully the um, talking about uh, the U Church in um, in the U Churches in Wyoming and what that. I know so many UU churches out there that are just plugging away, trying to keep going and that are in the middle of the country that, that don't get shout outs. And, um, our churches in Wyoming are a good example of that, that are just trying to keep going and, you know, trying to, to be Unitarian Universalism. And it was just such a, a privilege to be able to lift that up and, um, and then to say my favorite line of that whole thing is to say, here's some money. And to think that we as a faith would choose to give from our churches to these other, these small churches doing what they can. That was, that was the best. So I loved doing that. Um, I loved, I loved that whole, that, that whole section of um, envisioning. And I felt people were 
super with me. So that was very rewarding. I wonder what part of that inside you, Gretchen, is so, you know, I can, we can see each other in this conversation and I can see on your face how moving it is for you to imagine those small churches, the mint in your garden, you know, <laughs> plugging away and over all the years um, and that tenacity of kind of the little guy who doesn't get the shout outs at our big fancy general assembly. Like, I don't know, what part of you is moved by that? Or does that connect with some part of your story? Hey, listener, it's Elaine. So I'm going to jump in here because at this point in the podcast, we are trying something a little different. Gretchen did respond to this question I posed in our original conversation. And then later in that day, I got a text from her saying, you know, I've been thinking about that question you asked me, and there's something else that I want to offer instead. And so she recorded on her phone this alternative a truer response to this question, which I've cut and pasted into our podcast here. The sound quality is not ideal, but this really comes from the heart, and I wanted to be sure to include it. I thought a little bit more about your question about what story from my own life, um, my attention to smaller churches and rural communities might connect with. And I realized that I was leaving out what is probably the most obvious connection, um, which is my own, my own family story. So I was raised in a small town um, in Northwest Washington state, Port Angeles, Washington, and um, raised in the Catholic church there. I, I, I was in Catholic school from kindergarten through eighth grade, and we were really active in that Catholic church. And the priests that were in my Catholic church also served the churches in the surrounding Catholic, the surrounding towns, the much even smaller towns, including in Forks, Washington, where my um, my mother was raised and where my grandmother, my both my grandparents, lived their whole lives. And um, and it's that it's actually that church that I feel most. Um, connect with some of the, my sense of the value of, um, for example, what is going on in um, Casper or some of those all other rural communities and how vital Unitarian Universalism is and can be in those communities. Um, because my grandmother was very, very, very active in the Bork um, Catholic Church, including to help um, uh, start the food bank connected there and um, and also, uh, you know, present every Sunday, present every Holy Day, present in the help to build the, um, the, the new social hall. My parents were married in that church. Um, and it also was under-resourced, underfunded, under-considered, not glamorous in any possible way, but um, was to help they fix for her and for, uh, so many people, um, in a, in a really this world kind of way. Um, and so I really understand how important both those churches can be and also how incredibly dedicated and faithful the lay leaders in those communities can be and how transformative that lay leadership can be um, when it's faithful and how much it's missed when it's not there. So I think that's the 
that is at the heart of some of that um, that drive and my sense of, um, of my value of that commitment. And I also want to say I'm kind of embarrassed that I didn't originally think of saying it. And I think it sort of it it it, it reveals a, an ambivalence I have around small towns in that I spent my childhood knowing, well, first of all, my first thought was this town must want to grow. Um, don't all towns want to grow and become, as I thought, a bigger dot on the map? Um, but most small towns actually don't want to grow. They would like to stay their exact size and be exactly the same and not change. And so that tension was always what made me want to, to leave because I thought I wanted to be in a place that wants to grow. And I think there is something in that about my own ambivalence about small churches in our movement as well, and that that I I so believe in growth as an not not numerical growth necessarily, but um, spiritual growth and change as a mandate of of who we are as progressive um, people of faith, and that resistance of anxiety about change and about growth is is a part of, uh, it's often a part of the DNA of, of in our smaller congregations. And so I, I think that my ambivalence and my tension of how I feel about some of our smaller communities and churches was revealed in my, um, my uh, just how much I, did, I, I didn't think of this most obvious story when you asked me that, Elaine. And so I appreciate the chance to offer it and to acknowledge both the, um, the gift and the value that I, I feel in my core and also my desire um, to invite something um, more that I think is possible in all of our communities, regardless of their size. So sometimes we say that we preach the thing that we need to hear. And that's, that's not every sermon, but sometimes in our, that some of our most compelling sermons, there's some nugget in there that was something that we needed to hear ourselves. Was there a piece of this sermon that was something that you also needed to hear and remember and hold tight? Like that tension of, um, of, how much has been lost in through the pandemic and pandemics, all the changes of the last few years, the forces of undoing um, the ways that people I could feel it in in our colleagues and in our congregants and in myself sometimes just a deep exhaustion mm-hmm. um, and a sense of like, was it worth it? This much sacrifice, has it been worth it? And especially given that the pandemic is not over and the state of our democracy seems at no near, not at all close to, uh, turning around you know like it and so I feel people's weariness and I feel my own weariness around that and so I um I think the idea that we could build in the midst of this hopelessness is and that it oh 
And the, the, the note of saying, we did it, we did it. Mm -hmm. And that means something. Mm -hmm. And it's a miracle that, that, like, I feel like everybody and me needs to remember that, that that's not, um, I really hope that people got that, that I wasn't, you know, that we can long for something else and we can feel so amazed and grateful that we did it. And we can reckon, just really take that in that we, we did it. And, um, and we can be excited about a future. We don't have to hold back and feel only the undoing. Mm -hmm. And those both to me are critical <laughs> and um and also always you know there's moments where i forget them all the time too so um yeah i really wanted to say that and i need it of course needed to hear it too yeah i found myself really moved by and you know some pieces of your sermon that really stuck with me was when you said so much has been lost it must be time to build and also saying that you know surviving is too small of a dream for our big faith. So I feel kind of to your point, acknowledging all the feels and the sadness and despairing and tiredness and acknowledging we did it and saying like, there's, there's more to do. Like there's, there's something more out there for us together. Mm -hmm. You know, I feel like all of that was the, when that as that comes together, that's kind of the alchemy of your mm -hmm. sermon. Mm -hmm. Were you nervous to talk about money or was there a part of you that was like, you know, maybe, maybe just not talk about money because that's hard. Or were you, so partly one of my, like, how to decide what I'm going to say on this Sunday was I thought, oh, oh, despite your opening words of this podcast, I thought I'm probably never going to get a chance to speak to the Unitarian Universe Association with this big of a platform again. And so <laughs> one of the things that I absolutely want to make sure I've said, mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that I feel really strongly about is my, is what I said about, um, um, about money and in particular that question of how many churches would we be planting if we decided that Unitarian Universalist churches matter at least as much as NPR or Planned Parenthood. Yeah. And, and that I think that so often our people are hesitant about giving to, uh, like we wait to give to UU churches because instead we're like, well, we need to make sure we support these other causes that matter so much, especially right now. I know so many of our folks are giving to um, abortion access and, um, organizations that are working on reproductive justice, which I, of course, that's great. And, um, I, there is no other folks out there that are then giving to the local UU church. Like we're it. So there's lots of people that are giving to Planned Parenthood. And, and the only way that we're going to be able to be in partnership with Planned Parenthood is if people also give to the UU churches. And so I, no, I didn't have any hesitancy about that. I felt like it, I knew how many, I mean, it was partly by talking to my colleagues through, as I led up to this, like I knew how many churches are out there right now cutting their budgets back. And so I can't really get up and say, let's make this big dream 
and then not say, but that means you got to give at the same time. And you need to reprioritize your giving to, to believe that the UU church is, um, is the most important place you could give your money. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, you know, I did think a lot about, as I, especially that, yeah, through the whole thing, what would, what would be important for our congregations you know, to make vibrant UU congregations, what what would our colleagues out there want to be able to point to me saying? Because I can become like, they, then they don't need to say it. They can say, I said it. And that maybe we should listen to that. So I thought, I know I was thrilled to get to say that. I thought a lot about, like, it's a little bit of a, uh, those last, those big ideas, there's, I could say like 10 other ideas, but that one was always, I was like, no matter what I'm saying this. So uh, in your fourth point that you made at the end, you said there are lots of places where people can get great content, but what people really need are places of great belonging. And in my heart, I went, yes. (laughs) And then I heard you go on to say that part of this you know, belonging and mutuality and relationship nurturing is asking for help. And I was surprised by that and I loved hearing it. And I was also just really curious about that. What are you hoping folks will take away from hearing that asking for help is part of what we need to be doing right now? I mean, I get it in the big picture, but what um, I'd love to hear more about like what kind of seeds you were hoping to plant for individuals and congregations there. Well, some of it was an echo back to the beginning of the sermon when I said that in the early pandemic, we knew clearly that we needed help. Like there was just, it was such a, it was such confusion for everybody that no one thought they knew what they were doing. And I think that state with that, what that state means is that um, you're really open to collaboration and relationship um, because you know you need it. And like the one of the best ways to build trust and relationship is to ask for help. So I like just learning from that, that we could be a people who are really good at asking for help, which is very different than, you know, we, that's a big gro- growing edge for us, but um, that we could be, we could remember that actually we know how to do that and that 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 could lead towards um, better relationships. I love that frame that it isn't just uh, admitting that actually self-reliance isn't working for us 100% of the time, but that it's something that helps to grow what we value most, which is trust and relationship. It grows the strength of our relationships and institutions. Yeah. And you know, what's, what's, it's the opposite of what we tend to think because people don't like there's deep stories around not wanting to be a burden. Mm-hmm. And so you think, oh, if I ask for help, then somebody's going to think I'm a burden or, um, but it, if you think about the times when somebody has asked you for help, even if you're not able to help, the fact that somebody turned to you and asked you is almost always relationship strengthening. And almost always, like, it, it makes you um, know that person better. And so 
I I think, yeah, it's a practice. I, I, it was one in the room people cheered and laughed at because they knew it was something we're not actually <laughs> great at. But if we can remember, actually, we were really good at it in the early pandemic. I've got so many people asking, um, you know, our congregation and from within our congregation each other for help. Um, we can, we, and as a result, we were closer mm -hmm. as a result of that. Mm. Thank you for li that. That's, that's, you know, it's a small little point of that last thing, but it is really important. Every part of that number, the fourth point of kind of how might we grow and build how we do relationships. That's, you know, it's 30 minutes of a sermon before that. But to me, that is the most important part of the vision going forward is not to forget that that piece. And so I appreciate you pulling that out. All right. I'm going to ask you just some quick Q&A about your experience of General Assembly in Portland. And I want to invite your succinct and off the cuff responses. Okay. okay. Best food you ate. Mm, the first night um I went with my friend Nathan Ryan to a vegan um 80s punk bar and um it was like like a kind of a dive bar feel but it was all vegan and it was really good I had a french dip that was super delicious that is awesome <laughs> okay what's your number one coping strategy for traveling Hmm. Um, getting there early, like I just really need to be where I'm because I get so disoriented. I so being at the airport really early, get, getting to places just in the travel parts. I'm not a, as you know, I'm not an early person to anything. I'm usually late to most things, but when I travel, I get there early. Mm -hmm. All right. So at General Assembly, there's always a huge room that is an exhibit hall with lots of exhibit tables with yeah. everything from chalices to books to stoles for ministers. Where in the exhibit hall could you hang out for the longest? Oh, um, the UUA section. Like, because there's a lot of people there that I, I know and end up talking to. So, yeah, I was there the longest this time for sure. Excellent. Okay. So what, what was an item you were really glad that you packed? Um, I'm going to go with my water bottle. Just <laughs> that was, uh, or, or my mask. <laughs> One of those two very practical <laughs> things. But I mean, it, COVID was real at General Assembly. Um, I know uh, personally six people who ended up with COVID maybe like likely not from general assembly but more like the hangouts afterwards the the social time where you don't have masks on um and i was really at tuesday night i went to karaoke and um i wore a mask the whole time at karaoke and um and i was so grateful because somebody in that small room of karaoke ended up covid two days later oh man so i'm that's I've got to say the mask, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Last three. I'm going to ask you to pinpoint three moments. What was a fabulous fun moment? Gosh, sorry. I, like so many. Um, it doesn't have to be the top one. 
Okay. So I think definitely when um, Adam, the Adam Pod, who played piano in our service, when he was playing the offering and I knew what was happening, like what the hell the song was going to go. And I knew like people thought he was done and there was still so much magic to come. And just watching his face and watching people react to him. It was, that was like a peak experience for me. I love, and then as we transitioned to, um, to from his amazing brilliance into Leah's heart wide open song, keep your heart wide open, just oh, top, top experience. Like in my life, it was so beautiful. That was so amazing. It came through. I've never had a musical experience like that with a piece that I'm not familiar with, uh, over screen. I mean, it was really palpable. It was unbelievable. All right. What was a moment where you were like, you know what? I'm kind of ready for GA to be over. When did you know you were done? <laughs> um, you know what? I actually have to say it wasn't until uh, we were at brunch after the Sunday service. And, <laughs> and like we had brunch with about 20, 20 or so people. And it was, it, I just, I, I was suddenly exhausted and I wanted to talk to no more people yeah um and I needed to go like stare at a wall for a minute um but I that never happens to me that at GA that I wait all the way till Sunday to have that feeling but just because I was everything was pointed towards Sunday it was then Mm, totally all right last question when was a I'm proud to be a UU moment for you Mm, um I went to the UU Christian Fellowships eight eight fifteen a.m. service um, that Sadie Lansdale preached, and um, it was like one of the best sermons I've ever heard. And I, the room was actually fuller than it is usually for those very early morning services, especially the Christian Fellowship, um, and I. I thought that the service was really, it was honest, it was beautiful, it was progressive, and it was Christian. And I just, I, I was proud of that we could hold um, such depth and diversity. And, and they were speaking, it was the day after, it was like when Roe fell, like it was, they, like it was the first thing that I'd gone to after the news hit. I think it was that morning, right? So um, like they were speaking directly into the pain of row falling, but using Christian text. And I, it was just incredible. And I, I really felt the possibility of if we live fully into our, our big faith piece, that like truly not to be afraid of any part of depth and meaning and bringing people hope. And just how how possible that is, and how powerful we are when we do that. And I, yeah, I I was like, we could. It, there's just it's. We're amazing when we do that, and it's so it's so soul feeding when we do that. So for sure, there. Well, that's a beautiful place to wrap up our conversation. Thank you, Gretchen. Thank you for your message. Thanks for your time today for this conversation. It's been wonderful. Mm-hmm. It was such a, such a pleasure. Thank you. 
Thank you so much for joining us for this week's episode of the Foothills Deeper Pod. I hope you've left this time together feeling a little more grounded, a little more inspired, a little more wholehearted. If you have a moment, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave a positive review on Apple Podcasts. This really does help people discover the show when they're typing in keywords to Google. And, you know, in that moment where they're just trying to find the right something that might touch their lives in a meaningful way. And if there's anyone in your life who you think would resonate with the big questions we're wrestling with over here, please do send them a link. Spread the word. And thank you so much for listening. I'm so glad you joined us for this conversation today. 